Lord, we come to you, and indeed there is nobody like your son. <laughs> the text we're going to look at this morning is just another portrait that so vividly displays your grace, your forgiveness, your salvation. Guide us as we look at this text this morning in Jesus' name, that glorious name, one that nobody else can compare to. It's in his name we pray, amen. Well, if you would, turn to Luke chapter 7. If you've just joined us, we are journeying through this gospel. As you turn there, it was interesting, I was reading an article this week about the fear of entertaining this had to be pre-COVID, this survey, but uh, because obviously uh, COVID's not on the list, but I, you're going to love this. 57% believe it's more stressful to entertain in their home than to commute to work. <laughs> 57%. It's 44% have said it's more stressful to entertain than seeing the bank manager. I'm assuming they got a big loan they've got to pay. 24% said it's more stressful than a job interview. And when asked, why is it so stressful to entertain in the home, uh, the three top reasons were, one, the dish could, could go wrong, right? Always stick with the, the one you know works, uh, or at least have Kentucky Fried Chicken on speed dial, right? Or uh, White Castle. Secondly, I know. Uh, second reason that people feared entertaining was that the guests won't enjoy themselves. And the third was that their home decor wouldn't match up with those that they're entertaining. Feast or meals are very common in the Gospel of Luke. There are seven explicit references, two implicit references, and they are key, I will argue, to the narrative, which might surprise you. There is a one nestled here in our text where we are in chapter 7, verse 36. It's important to, again, step back a minute before we look at the bark on the tree and look at the, the forest from the sky and see where, have we, where, we are, where are we, I should say, in the text. We saw earlier in chapter 7 two miracles, a centurion slave and a widow's son, and it was demonstrating who is this Jesus then later in chapter 7, the text we looked at last week, the question is, who is this? Are you the coming one? Who is this Jesus? John, of all people, asked the question. And Jesus answers it with texts from Isaiah 61, for instance, and other texts that he brings out of the Old Testament say, yes, I am the one that gives sight to the blind, makes the lame walk, sets the captive free. And in this text, in the latter part of 7, it's going to be illustrated how we then respond to that identity that's been disclosed. It's such a powerful scene. Let's look at it. Chapter 7, verse 36. I know I jokingly state that this is my favorite passage, but this has to be one of my favorite scenes in the life of Jesus. It says, Now one of the Pharisees asked Jesus to have dinner with him. There will be three dinners in Luke's gospel where a Pharisee is hosting a meal. This is one of them. And all three times, Jesus will rebuke the Pharisee before it's over. So you already know where this is headed. So we have one character, it's a Pharisee, who asked Jesus to have dinner with him. So he went out to the Pharisee's house and took his place at the table. Then when a woman of the town, here's our second character, 
and we are told who was a sinner. She's a woman of ill repute. I mean, you couldn't have a, a greater contrast, right? You've got a Pharisee, a social elite, religiously devout, a, a, a popular, most likely wealthy, and then you have this social outcast, spiritually bankrupt, and she's present. And learn that Jesus was dining at the Pharisee's house. She brought an alabaster jar of perfumed oil, and she stood behind him at his feet. Now, I know the first question you ask is, well, how did she even get into the house? Why is she there? That's what I'd be asking. You know, this is a, a very fine dining experience. How did she sneak in the back door? It wasn't uncommon for banquets, which you are, by the way, you're reclining at a table, usually a U-shape. All right, so you're here, your feet are sticking out this way, you're reclining around a table. For those that uh, are uninvited guests are allowed, are permitted to enter, they would stand on the outside of the wall so that they might join in, at least hear the conversation, and perhaps catch a crumb or two, uh, some food. And so that's why she's there, and that's why the shocker isn't that she's there, it's what she's going to do. So watch this. In the Pharisee's house, she brought again this jar, and she stood behind him, Jesus at his feet, weeping. She began to wet his feet with her tears. She wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and anointed them with the perfumed oil. Now when the Pharisee, who's having a coronary at this moment, who had invited Jesus saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, and the Greek's clear, what he's saying is, if this man were a prophet, and he's not, he would know who and what kind of woman is touching him, that she is a sinner, which he also doesn't know, implied in the Greek. So Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he replied, say it, teacher. Well, a certain creditor, Jesus goes on, has, there's two debtors. One owed him 500 silver coins. These are denarii. One silver coin, you might have heard, is about a day's wage. That would be a very generous day's wage. 200 denarii is most likely an annual salary for even a soldier. This is a princely sum. This is at least two years, approximately two years of income. 500 silver coins, and the other has 50. When they could not pay, he, the, the one who gave the loan, cancels the debts on both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, well, I suppose. And <laughs> it's grudgingly his response here. The one who had the bigger debt canceled. And Jesus said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? Oh, yes. <laughs> He's seen the woman. All right. I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her own tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss of greeting, and from the time I entered, she's not stopped kissing my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she's anointed my feet with perfumed oil. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which were many, are forgiven this she loved much, but the one who is forgiven little loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. But those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Well, we only need to go back in chapter 7 to see who that is. And Jesus responds to John. And then in verse 50, he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. And I love the last line. 
go in peace. Let's unpack this text, and you have an outline there before you. But again, uh, a mill scene is very significant in Luke's gospel. When you see this, you, you need to take note. Again, there's nine of those. One scholar writes, before the first century, readers took up Luke's gospel. They knew of mills as a symbol of intimacy divine provision, and a vehicle for the expression of eschatological hope. Think about how the Gospel of Luke ends. It's at a dinner on the Emmaus Road. The fellowship that is there, etc. <laughs> One scholar describes the meals as acted parables in the Gospel of Luke. I love that line. But meals in the first century were very important. It was a means for social gatherings, but also there was a, an ethical obligation that's attached to it. I think the greatest analogy is those breakfasts that they provide for free at those timeshares, right? <laughs> you know what I'm talking about. You spend three days at a resort and they say, we got a breakfast for you. It's lovely. Can't, we want you to come. I did that once. That was a nightmare, right? <laughs> Three hours later, and they've, they've taken everything in you and, you know, had you sign the dotted line. That's the idea here in, in one sense is when you were invited over to someone's home, there are strings attached in the first century. This wasn't just a social gathering. Simon's intent, we do not know. But it's clear he's not a believer in Jesus. So was it so that he might learn more about Jesus? Maybe it's a political game. It, it, you know, he looks good because he had Jesus in his home. Perhaps it was to trap Jesus. We just don't know the, the reasoning for this. Again, we are reclining at this table, which is very significant. Uh, and also, again, the two characters. The Pharisee is mentioned four times before we hear his name, Simon. The woman is described twice as a sinner and twice as one who has sinned greatly. So the, the lines are drawn, aren't they? You've got this Pharisee, Pharisee. The text doesn't want you to forget that. And for her, she's not a good person. This isn't someone you want to date your son, right? I doubt Simon would have ever dreamed that this evening would go this way. Talk about the fear of entertaining uninvited guests, you know? Uh, this is a nightmare that this woman comes in. It's bad enough that she's standing. He's probably already noticed her walk into the room. And you can just, I mean, my hands get sweaty just thinking for Simon. This is awful. But that isn't bad enough. She goes and then proceeds to do what she does. What's more astounding isn't that she's just present, but as we said, what she's doing. And I want you to note this. This is in your notes there. But first of all, she brings an alabaster jar of perfumed oil. Now, alabaster is a beautiful stone, but the, the vessel that most likely is being referred to here in the first century is something made out of clay or glass. They were all also called alabaster if it's nard that is the perfume that she is utilizing, it would be a one-year salary in one little bottle. So it could be extremely costly. Nonetheless, this isn't Crisco oil that she's got in that little vial. 
normally this vessel was preserved for very special occasions such as your funeral or the death of a loved one. So she brings in this alabaster jar of perfumed oil and we're told that she stands at his feet. I mean, who wants dirty feet when you're reclining? Jesus even is going to state later, it was customary for your servants. They should have washed my feet coming in. Remember, we have sandals. Uh, The feet are dirty. But there's something, I think, far more significant going on here. Feet are mentioned seven times in this text. And I don't think it's a coincidence. There's a passage in Isaiah 52. In fact, if you want, you may turn there. Isaiah 52. It's a text I want to highlight. I want you to see this. We've already seen Isaiah 61, Isaiah 40, Isaiah 35 serving as backdrops to to Luke 7. And I would argue Isaiah 52 is a text that's being thought of in this passage. Why do I say that? Let's look at Isaiah 52, 6. Therefore my people shall know my name. Context, Israel has sinned. They have been deported. They're in slavery, in, well, in exile in Babylon. And the, Isaiah 52 says, you're going to be brought back. Your sins are going to be forgiven. And notice what it says. Therefore in that day they shall know that it is I who speak. Here I am. Then verse 7, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. There are four connectors with this passage in Isaiah with Luke, issues of salvation. The whole text ends in peace. And who is your God being present? Verse 9, break forth together into singing, you waste places of Jerusalem, for the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations. All the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. You say, well, maybe it's just a coincidence that there's this connection here. And there are four of them. The the idea that one will know their sin, that God will draw them close, that there's forgiveness, salvation, and peace. All of that's touched with these two texts in Isaiah 52 and Luke 7. But here's the, the kicker, or I think the clincher, is that Isaiah 52 is prominent in Jewish literature in the first century intertestament and first century even going forth. In other words... Jewish scholars also saw Isaiah 52 as a reference to the coming of salvation, that these feet are going to bring good news of restoration and forgiveness. In one Dead Sea Scroll, and by the way, did you see the two Dead Sea Scrolls that were found just recently? That's very significant. One is of Zechariah chapter 8. I thought, I wish it was at Zechariah 9 because that's the reference to the triumphal entry, but we'll take eight, that's all right. And the other is from Nahum, these minor prophets, it's just very significant. But in 11Q Melchizedek 13, you say, well, I don't know what that means. It is a Dead Sea Scroll that refers to the Messiah coming who will be in the order of Melchizedek. Remember Hebrews? That's exactly what he states. 
This was Jewish thought. And it, what it was in 11 Melk, it says the Messiah is coming and the, the spirit will be upon him. And it takes Isaiah 52 and Isaiah 61 and it weaves them together. This one will come, the feet of the one who will bring salvation. He'll give sight to the blind, make the lamp. This is not a coincidence. Let me give you another, a later Jewish writing, though I think it goes back earlier. Listen to what it says. Great is peace, seeing that when the messianic king is to come, he will commence with peace. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of the messenger of good tidings that announces peace. He will reveal himself to Israel. And, and, and there's further texts that go on. In other words... This reference to feet that's accentuated time and time again in this text is to demonstrate, I would argue, that this woman is functioning as one who is preparing the announcement of this one who brings us peace, the one who brings salvation. The, the, the connections are huge as she stands at the feet of Jesus, this one who embodies salvation. The woman, again, is preparing Jesus as the one who will announce the good news of God's kingship to Jerusalem and to the world. That is what she's doing, I would argue. Isn't that significant? This, is, this isn't just, oh, well, you're drawing some connections here with Isaiah 52. No, this was a prevalent thought in Jewish writings that Isaiah 52 is referring to the Messiah, one who will bring salvation. And I love that Dead Sea Scroll that weaves Isaiah 52 with Isaiah 61, a very text we saw earlier in Luke chapter 7. Well, let's go on. She not only stands at the feet and brings this jar, she then wipes his feet, the text tells us in verse 38, with her own tears and her own hair. The word that the weeping here is, is like a rain shower. This is uncontrollable weeping. This isn't just a couple tears. According to rabbinic writings, letting down one's hair, that is for a woman, to wash a man's feet who was not your husband was grounds for divorce. While this may not have been taught in the first century or on the north side of Sea of Galilee, what she is doing is socially unacceptable to let down her hair. And again, put yourself in Simon's shoes. You've prepared the perfect dinner. I mean, you got baklava ready to go at the end of the dinner. I mean, it's, it's a perfect, you got the flower centerpiece. I mean, this thing has been arranged. You've invited the, the powerful, the, the religious elite, and she's ruining all of it. And what she's doing is the social, I mean, even what Simon says, she's touched you with her own hair. You're, you're not allowed to do this. It's forbidden. And then if that doesn't, beat all. And the text tells us she kisses his feet. Think about who's kissed Jesus or who will kiss Jesus. The, the phrase reminds me of the prodigal son, the father who goes out and kisses his own son. Or when Paul says farewell to the elders at Ephesus, the, the term is the same as here, kissing uncontrollably, the, the love, the passion, the understanding of this one that she's kissing has forgiven her own sin. And of course, she anoints the feet with the perfumed oil, which is mentioned three times in the text so that you don't miss it. 
It was the precursor to doTERRA. I don't know, essential oils. I mean, it's a very uh, important event that she's doing. Her actions, they're personal, they are radical, and they're extremely costly. Hmm. Well, if Jesus is the coming one, in verse 39, the text tells us, then Jesus should have known that she is an adulterous woman, a woman of ill repute. And again, Simon's question is very clear. Jesus does not seem to know, or he's not a prophet, and he doesn't seem to know what's going on. And the irony is, Jesus knows who she is, as we're going to see, and he also knows what Simon is thinking. Because <laughs> it says that Simon speaks to himself. The first person to speak audibly is in verse 40. When Jesus answered Simon and says, yes, we know these things, right? Again, put yourself in Simon's shoes. He's prepared the perfect dinner, and you have this disaster that is occurring here in your own banquet room. Jesus then gives an, a little bit of an illustration with these two debtors, and one is 10 times greater, right? 500 silver coins, denarii, versus 50. Uh, the analogy I, think I could think of was a mortgage on a house versus a loan on a car. The point is that neither who have taken out the loans can pay them back. The text is clear, right? They're, they're both unable, unable to cover the expenses this is going to preach. We can take this. No matter your sin, how great or how small, we're unable to atone for our sin. That's where we're going with this sucker. But let's go back to the text. And, and this idea is that neither de de debtor is able to pay back the loan, and neither debtor merits the grace extended to them. Right? Why should the debtor pay back the one who owes 50 or 500? Neither one needs to occur. And of course, the object lesson is clear. And Simon says, I suppose, in his response in verse 43, is one of grudging admission, this term. It could be that he's being careful as a, a Pharisee not to respond too quickly. But I suspect rather he's, he, he knows where Jesus is going. <laughs> he knows what's being stated here. And then, in case he doesn't, Jesus is going to be quick to point out the differences, right? <laughs> Simon, he fails to, notice what the text says. You, you didn't even wash my feet when I came in. Your servants were supposed to do that. That was, that was social etiquette that you were to do that. Not only that, you didn't anoint my head with oil, which you would do if you had someone uh, very important that would come into the house. You didn't do that. You, you didn't kiss me with a greeting. I always love when I See my Palestinian friends in the old city of Jerusalem. First thing they do, they're kissing each side of my cheek. I don't do that, right? But this, that was the custom. It still is. You didn't do any of that, Simon. You're concerned about the cleanliness of this room, and the issue is the cleanliness of your own heart, which you have missed. And you certainly put yourself far more significant in the social stratosphere in comparison to the woman. One scholar states here, 
Forgiveness is not a result of the acts that this woman is doing. Rather, the acts testify to love's presence in gratitude for the previous granting of forgiveness. When Jesus states in verse 48, your sins are forgiven, and then in verse 50, your faith has saved you, those are perfect past tense verbs. In other words, it's already occurred before this. Her washing his feet and doing all this is not what gave her forgiveness. She has already been forgiven. What she's doing is demonstrating genuine faith, isn't she? She's demonstrating gratitude to what God has done and the pardon that has been given. And that's what's being stressed here. Again, do not miss the references to forgiveness, faith, and salvation. They are key to this passage. The sinful woman responds in brokenness and extreme love for her Savior. Why Simon and his friends require proof. It's what Jesus stated earlier in verse 35. Remember this? Look at verse 35 in Luke 7. It says, But wisdom is vindicated by all her children. The woman demonstrates she has been vindicated, that she has been forgiven. She's basked in wisdom, presence of Christ. For Simon, he's missed it. He's missed what has occurred in his own presence. Salvation is always based on faith. It's not what you do, and we see that here. And then Jesus says to her in verse 50, go in peace. Sadly, Simon and his companions forfeit a relationship with the Lord, but they also are forfeiting the opportunity to have peace. In the uncontrollable tears of this lady, the humiliating position she's placed herself in, the wave of innuendos and accusations, you know, Simon is probably not the only one mumbling things under his breath. I can imagine people parting ways around that are reclining by Jesus with this woman here. And the vulnerable exposure are all eclipsed, aren't they? by the promise of shalom, peace with this one. In 2018, Peace Perceptions poll was taken. It might surprise you, they found that those living in more peaceful countries tended to be more pessimistic about the future prospects for peace. In fact, more than 50% of those who lived in the United States have little hope for peace. That was in 2018. Imagine if we retook it today. The political upheaval, the medical messages, and not knowing what you're supposed to do, uh, the chaos that we're living in. And, and yet, when Scripture talks about peace, it's talking about a wholeness. It's talking about a completeness. It's the purpose for why Christ came. After all, he is peace, according to Ephesians 2. Interesting as well in the New Testament, God the Father is called peace, and so is the Holy Spirit. Simon was far more concerned with the peace in his dining room experience rather than peace in the soul of this woman. Years she had lived a life with chaos, despair, and hopelessness. 
No wonder she'll take a very precious commodity. She doesn't care what anyone thinks. The opportunity to bask in the Savior's presence. (laughs) Wow. John Calvin stated, hell reigns wherever there is no peace with God. And we're living in a world that does not know this peace. We've missed it. There are three principles there in your notes. The first of these, how we respond to Jesus indicates our understanding of his grace and forgiveness. Have you come to an understanding that you are a sinner desperately in need of mercy? And look at these two individuals. Look at the Pharisee. In his accomplishments, his social identity, his wealth, his religiosity, Simon had felt he did not need Jesus. Again, is more concerned with the uncleanliness of the situation rather than his own heart. Or you have this woman, I suspect, in her desperate state and in her sin, she felt she was unredeemable. You have the ends of the spectrums, don't you? And yet this woman understand, no, this one brings peace through salvation in his name. And it's only through Christ There's a quote down at the bottom of your notes by Arthur Pink. He says, growth in grace is growth downward. It is the forming of a lower estimate of ourselves. It is a deepening realization of our nothingness. It is a heartfelt recognition that we are not worthy of the least of God's mercies. That's where this woman was. And until we are there, there is no hope. There is no peace. Because we have to get to a point where we recognize Jesus is the only way. And my sin has created this huge chasm to have intimacy with the Lord. The thought of dining with Jesus, the idea of of having fellowship with him, is foreign to those who have not come to a recognition that I am a sinner, I need that grace that's been extended to me because Christ died on a cross and he rose from the dead. What a glorious message Easter is, right? That this one has died for us. He has given us peace. Secondly, in your notes, true faith expresses itself in love, gratitude, and devotion. That's why this woman's overwhelming gratitude looked beyond any cultural norm or rule of etiquette. She didn't care about Robert's rules of orders or Martha Stewart or any of that, right? Her gratefulness to the Lord eclipsed any concern of what others might think. Her devotion, by the way, made no assumptions or demands on Jesus, did it? John MacArthur is correct. He states, the most compelling motivation for faithful, obedient living should not be the threat of discipline or loss of reward. Catch this but overflowing and unceasing gratitude for the marvelous mercies of God. Christianity is not about a bunch of do's and don'ts. Young people hear this in particular. It's what a lot of people want to say. It's a bunch of Puritans standing over in a corner shaking their fingers. Uh Uh-uh. We do what we do because we love him and we understand the grace that has been extended. That's Christianity. Sadly, we are not born as a grateful people, are we? 
thankfulness doesn't come naturally, I would argue, to us. And for some, it never comes at all. In fact, I would argue, I think it's one of the greatest shortcomings of our generation is the lack of gratitude. I'm always shocked when we give a gift or you do something for someone and there's, there's no appreciation. I wonder how many times the Lord shakes his head at us. Hmm. I mean, think about it. You, you tell the child, well, what do you say? Thanks. Yeah, thank you. That's what I wanted to hear. But, but you want more than that as a parent, don't you? I mean, how do you show gratitude? You tell your kid by saying you love me, you know, telling your friends how cool I am, right? A thank you without having to ask obedience. That's what I expect if, if you're truly grateful. How much more the Heavenly Father? This week, what are some practical ways we can show our gratitude to the Lord? I, just, I wrote down a few. Giving thanks before a meal. Should go without saying. Give us this daily bread. We're quick to pray it, but do we thank them when the bread comes, right? Giving thanks before a meal. Thanking the Lord each day this week for a specific blessing in your life. Make a list. Surely you can come up with six this next week. And thank the Lord each one this week. Lord, thank you for my spouse. Thank you for my family. Thank you for my salvation. Thank you for my health. You, you can fill in the blanks, right? Addressing an issue in your life. Perhaps a way to show gratitude is to take one of those issues in your life and say, I'm going to turn this over to the Lord. This is an area I finally need to address. I can't keep doing this. Maybe you need to read Ephesians 1. Hang that on your beak for a week. Commit it to memory. Reflecting on what the Lord has done for you. Or perhaps sharing with two or three people this week your testimony. This is what God's done for me. Imagine this lady and, and the testimony she had after this encounter. I got to wash Jesus' feet. <laughs> he told me I could go in peace. The scars, the years of hard life are all written all over her. She says, I have peace now because of Jesus. Gratitude. And then finally, the last of your notes, the grace the Lord has extended to us should eliminate an anxious heart, a critical spirit, and a doubting thought. The old lyrics of the hymn, I am his and he is mine. Listen to these two verses. In fact, I pulled up several hymnals and I couldn't find the third verse, the second verse, really, that I'm going to read to you. It was in an old one that, for some reason, it, it's been removed in the newer hymnals. And it's so powerful. Listen to these lyrics. Loved with everlasting love, led by grace that loved to know. Spirit breathing from above, thou hast taught me it is so. Oh, this full and perfect peace, joy and wonder of divine, in a love which cannot cease. I am his and he is mine. Now listen to the second verse. Things that once were wild alarms cannot now disturb my rest. Closed in everlasting arms, pillowed on the loving great one. Oh, to, to be there forever. I'm sorry. Doubt and care and self-resign while he whispers in my ear, I am his and he is mine. Why do we struggle with anxiety or doubt? Perhaps 
it's like Simon and we struggle a little bit with not having humility. <laughs> Maybe we've not been brought low enough to recognize what God has done. Perhaps, like Simon, we've not focused on Jesus enough. Or perhaps it's not a willingness to sacrifice and be vulnerable. Peace. If we're occupied with anything other than the grace of God, then peace will fail to exist, I would argue. But when we look to Christ, no matter the circumstance or the surrounding, we will find peace in him. It's a beautiful scene. Isn't it? This woman who has lived the rough life, but all oh, she has found forgiveness at the feet of the one she basked in. And Jesus can state to her, your faith has saved you. You were forgiven. Go in peace. Father, we, just, we love these stories that have been recorded from the life of your son. And this one is so close to home because, Lord, we too, like this woman, are sinners. We too have sought to live life apart from you, perhaps to find identity apart from you or peace and tranquility, and in fact, we found that that only leads to bankruptcy. For those of you who, in this room, who know your son is their savior, we can testify, indeed, there is peace in you. Father, for those who don't know you, I pray that today they would bend their knee, they would fall at your feet, and realize how sweet it is to be in your presence. For those of us who do know your son, Father, give us hearts that display gratitude, hands and feet that are dictated by peace, but also by a appreciation for all that you have done, all that you are doing. And we'll thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.